Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming. <coughs> Joseph Conrad, in one of his prefaces, famously said, my aim is to make you see. In these lectures, I have been trying to let the books, as it were, teach me how to see. And I hope that by the end of this lecture, you too will see a little bit differently an important book, Thompson's 1712 Works of Caesar. Throughout these lectures, one of my premises has been that objects make their meanings in relationship to other objects. And therefore, one of the aims in these lectures has been to try to discern the right constellations of objects with which to juxtapose the books under our scrutiny in order to make them resonate, to be able to attend to them more fully and to understand the complex, culturally imbricated ways that the books make their meanings to contemporaries. The dominant question of bibliography, once again, it seems to me, is how did this textual artifact, this book, if you will, as a shorthand, come to be the way it is? Today, I'll ask that question about a truly singular book, the 1712 Thompson Caesar. Here you see the splendid double engraved title page. The book, as many of you will know, was dedicated to no one less than Marlborough, the great English victor at the Battle of Blenheim, please. <laughs> the co-victor with Eugene of Savoy. And the whole typology underlining this book, if you will, is, is that the new Caesar of Europe is indeed Marlborough. This may seem preposterous to us, but the dedication in Latin, kind of this fawning dedication, cloying dedication, um, says um, Caesar was great and has only been exceeded in history in his attainments, military and civil, by you, capital letters, tua, and it's, it's, it's really rather bad stuff. But here it is, this is the premise of the book, that, that Marlborough is the new Caesar. Please note the beautiful historiated initials bespoke for this book, as well as the rather gorgeous headpieces Caesar writing on the great tablets of time. Uh, the subscription list for this book was limited to 87 men. But what an 87? Each one has a plate. And um, here, here we see the Caesar plate befittingly goes to Prince Eugene of Savoy. He, in some ways, is the real Caesar. Um, and here you see for each of them, this is the genre of the plate subscription book that I'd like to bring to the fore today. Every plate is subscribed for. Every subscriber paid a fee 
to Thompson as the undertaker in order to subsidize the commissioning of the artists, the engravers, the purchasing of the metal for the plates, the special paper involved, the rolling press work, in addition to the common press work that was necessary for this edition. To get the expenses taken care of up front, you run a plate subscription, and this makes a whole bibliographical genre, if you will, largely hitherto unexamined possible. Here we see the famous bison plate, sometimes lacking because people took it out and wanted to display it on the wall. Of course, it's based on a gross mistranslation or misunderstanding of Caesar and what he was talking about. He was probably talking about some kind of of reindeer-like figure, but that notwithstanding, you have seen this figure large in some of the publicity for the Lyle lectures, for which I apologize. <laughs> and um, um, but here, here you see that this is this is dedicated to the Margrave of Brandenburg, no less. Not bad, true European royalty, and. Um, the year later, he got his own Caesar dedicated to him outright, albeit with no plates. Um, and why would uh, a, a great general, uh, noble king, indeed, have a Caesar dedicated to him? Because, just as at Sandhurst and West Point now, the study of Caesar's accounts of his battles was one of the best, most thoroughgoing military manuals that was available. And so, what did they do? They studied Caesar to understand the marshalling of troops, the supplying of troops, the flanking movements, and so on, that he describes. This is a manual, as it were, we wouldn't read it that way, but uh, it's a manual of military order, as it were, and that's important. Of course, the beautiful last plate, the crowning of Caesar with the hodafno konomos, the laurel crown circle, the highest honor that could be attained as he rides in triumph, goes to John Lord Summers, the Lord Chancellor of England, the great Whig patron, friend of Tonson in a thoroughgoing way. And here, not to be sniffed at, the fourth plate, the first great map, uh, uh, goes to the Archbishop of uh, Canterbury, Thomas Tennyson, who has been the Archbishop of Canterbury since 1694. He will crown two kings in his lifetime. Not bad going. And so on. The future King George I is one of the subscribers. Here, the Elector of Hanover, and in, a, in an incredible kind of prolepsis, what does he get? He gets the map of Britannia. How extraordinary. And, and so on. And, and here we have a king. We have Augustus II, king of Poland. Augustus the Strong. A nice epithet. Augustus the Strong, a, a true king is on the list. And, and so on. If we look at the book itself, we see it is truly beautiful, designed painstakingly, opening by opening. The uh, type is Asandanica, 
by Van Dyke, and you can see the remarkable line spacing. The mise en page is, I think, truly impressive, genuinely winning. Here, the title page tells you loudly, this is not like other Tonson books. This is something new. There are no rules here until we get to the very bottom. There are no line rules. And this kind of rhythm of the page uh, is, is very Dutch. It's one color. This is a deviation, a one color title page for, for Thompson. Look at, the, look at the Virgil, if you will, the Dryden Virgil. Very, very, very different. 1697, 1698. This is, announces itself as a project of a very different kind if we know how to read, if we read this object in relation to this object. And so Joseph Addison was positively dithyrambic in his praise. It's the, it's the finest book that I have ever seen. It came out, it's an English book. It came out of a British printing house and it's Caesar and this is our heritage and how magnificent this is. Of course, Addison was part of the Thompson tribe, but nonetheless, but, but others too, Dibden and Moss, Brunet, the Huntington Library, even in California has given its imprimatur to this book as, as being a liminal moment in 18th century bookmaking. Hmm. How then are we to understand it? Collectors have prized it and placed it in the finest bindings, often because they understood the book as a source of national pride, a British book made by a British bookseller. Um, but, but is it really an English masterpiece? Um, take a look. Really? Oh, oh, the press work is by John Watts. Okay, <laughs> all right, we're, we're all right then. It's a funny British book. It's a funny book whose cultural agenda ostensibly is to say an English general is the great general of all of Europe, and yet, in the most thoroughgoing way, is this not a Dutch book? And how do we read those cultural cross-currents? Well, what was Thompson thinking? Here you see his portrait by Neller. Of course, Neller, fellow member of the Kit Kats and so on. What was Thompson thinking? What was he doing when he first traveled to Holland in 1703 to begin <coughs> the commissioning of the plates, the type, the historiated initials, the headpieces for what would become a monumental book. Well, fortunately, one way that we can begin to discern something of what he was doing is, is by examining the unique extant copy, at least in my understanding, of a kind of a specimen of, of the very first book that, that exists in, in a rather shabby uh, set of cardboard covers 
and, and uncut paper in some ways or unfinished paper um, in Christchurch Library. And I consider myself extremely uh, fortunate to have been shown this book. Uh, and we can compare uh, kind of line by line and page by page the early pages of the published Caesar with, with the, the specimen, as it were, and we can immediately perceive without going into chapter and verse and minute detail, this room gets warm, it's easy to sleep, um, that, that the text is entirely reset for the actual edition itself, as, as you might imagine. But you can see already that he's you know, got a pretty good idea of the mise-en-page. But we can also see by some close comparison that Samuel Clark hasn't finished his editorial work in, in establishing the text and in establishing the apparatus by the time that the sample is the specimen, as it were, is circulating. Also, um, it's a curious thing to begin working on a book for Tonson in 1703 and not to bring the book out until 1712, especially when there were only 87 subscribers. Now it is the case that Eugene of Savoy gave 30 guineas for his copy, so pleased was he with it. But even so, um, this was a long time in process or process for those of you who need simultaneous translation. And, and it seems to me that the variant title page of 1710, um, which only exists in a few copies that I've been able to find, suggests that there were some production problems. My own view is that very likely the supply chain in Holland was a long way for the production of the book in, in London itself. But in any case, we need to understand how this book came to be the way it is. And, and I think that one way of doing that is to look at a book that is, is, is far too neglected and, and little known. Uh, Thomas Ross's um, translation of uh, Silius Italicus's uh, Punic Wars, the, the longest poem we have extant in, in Latin. And, and this, is, this is a poem uh, written by the king's librarian in exile who goes on to, to great heights not only as a librarian but as a civil servant more generally for the king after the restoration and um, it's dedicated to the king he's part of the court in exile and he translates this poem on the second Punic War and it's a plate subscription volume starting with the king and going through much of the court in exile. It's a beautiful piece of bookmaking. Published in London in 1661. It's a translation with a continuation by Ross himself for three books to sort of finish the job, as it were. Very beautiful book. How are we to understand it? Well, it turns out that Silius Italicus is not um, clear about how he feels about Hannibal, nor even about Scipio Africanus. And we cannot read this book in a purely um, secular typological way to say, ah, the new king is to read himself as Hannibal. That's not going to work. 
or, or as Scipio, well, that's not going to work either. Rather, I think we need to really read the book in multiple ways and to try to understand that Salius Italicus himself lived through the Roman Civil War. 68-69. And the entire poem, particularly as translated by Ross, who lived through another civil war, is inflected through that trauma. More than 50 times the temporal of Jupiter Optimus Maximus is mentioned, usually with a reference to it going down in flames. Again and again, the fears of the people of Rome are adduced. All this in a poem about a war where the walls of Rome were never breached. But there are many scenes in the citizens' heads of fire in the city, of destruction regnant. And this is, is partly about Silas Italicus's um, uh, Silius Italicus's own fears and partly about Ross. So it's thoroughly inflected by the trauma of civil wars, it seems to me. Here we go. Let this divulge be Carthage shall greater things hereafter see. Rome burnt in Lydian flames, there shall be shown. And Jove from his Tarpinian temple throne, and so on. Here we see in the continuation. Um, so, so he's weighing up what he can do, but he doesn't weigh in properly how civil factions at home have weakened the great general's army. Huh, a prolepsis? Yes, methinks. Or even here, the winds change, and the fleet begins to crash against itself as if at civil war. And this happens again and again and again in the poem as a kind of leitmotif. And this is how I think we must understand the poem, not in some simple typological way, but rather as, as a book that's meant to uh, inculcate an understanding of the trauma of what has happened in the new king and to show him that greatness is possible following. That's what this book is, a book for a great ruler who has come through war. And I think this plate subscription book somehow uh, is, is, is present for the Tonson in a very real way. But there are other antecedents, truly. Um, the whole business of plate subscription in England starts with John Ogilby. John Ogilby, who was a, a dancer, a professional dancer. Um, we're pretty sure that he danced in the mask. Uh, uh, by Ben Jonson, the Gypsies Metamorphosed in 1621, and very likely hurt himself right around that time dancing professionally. He became a dancing master, and that put him in great contact with the nobility. He became part of the court, and in 1654, he leverages those connections in order to publish his Virgil. And here you see 100 plates, plate subscription, the first plate subscription book published in England, Ogilby's Virgil, 1654. And this is very much in the minds of many as the century progresses and well into the 18th. 
It's also the case that in 1660, he publishes a marvelous Iliad. Look how beautiful that is. And again, 100 subscribers. He's in with the court, and he gets it done. But I think that this is a marvelous piece of bookmaking. I, I've been fortunate to discover some Ogilvy manuscripts. Um, and uh, people think that Ogilvy's a hack because he was often undertaking these great projects and then was short of cash. Here we see him um, selling the Virgil plates and a hundred copies to um, a banker. Uh, why? Because he needs cash for the next great project, which is going to be the Virgil. He's on the dawn of the Virgil and he's run out of money. Um, that makes him a bad businessman. That doesn't make him a bad bookmaker. He might be bad at keeping the books, but maybe not at making the books. And even after the Virgil, he has a, a, a lottery to raise cash because the bankers are done with him, and he sells his stock by lottery um, uh, because he's desperate. He needs to keep going somehow. But, but we shouldn't discount Ogilvy or his contribution either to English letters and especially not to the history of English bookmaking and the trade. The Iliad was dedicated to the king, and I think that's a rather splendid page. That's a lovely book. That's not the product of a hack. That's the product of a man of taste. Here we see uh, the 1697, uh, 1698 uh, Thompson Virgil. Um, in Jonathan Swift, in A Tale of a Tub, uh, 1704, but of course written much earlier, um, made fun of this book as having a multiplicity of godfathers. And, and most people think that um, he said that because the book was, was dedicated to three um, opposition lords rather than to the king, William III, as, uh, as Thompson wanted him to. Uh, Clifford, Chesterfield, and Mulgrave. But I think Swift, clever observer of the book trade, understands that there weren't three godfathers for this book. There were 103 because, of course, this is a plate subscription book. But there weren't 103 because the plates for this book are taken entirely from the Ogilvy Virgil. All the dedications are rubbed out and they're all reinscribed. So ostensibly, those patrons were paying five pounds to pay those production costs. The commissioning of the artist, the commissioning of the engraver, the metal in the plate. But there was something dodgy going on here because all the plates are in fact recycled with new dedicatees for a new generation. So nonetheless, we must account it a remarkable book. Here, um, Virgil himself is reaching um, for the golden bow. And, and here, of course, is, he's uh, confronting Charon. Um, 
It is true, the rumor is true, that uh, because the Catholic Dryden was so staunch in his refusal to dedicate the book to King William, and Thompson was so insistent that this should happen, unbeknownst to Dryden, he gave Virgil, he gave uh, um, uh, Aeneas the nose of King William. So he puts him in the classical scene, raising all sorts of questions, this very distinctive kind of uh, hooked aquiline nose. Here you can see it a little bit better. This is King William III, no question. So he's in the classical scene. This is a kind of um, payback because, he, because the book is dedicated to those three opposition lords. Um, so here's the Ogilvy Virgil of 1668, um, a beautiful book. Uh, this is the English translation of the, the 1660, and it's really a, a lovely, lovely, um, lovely book. And here, here you see the dedication uh, to Lord Seymour, and there he is, as uh, there's the hoary-headed swain, and um, there he is. You can see him, he's kind of a generic character. And here is the Dryden Tonson Virgil, the very same scene. It goes a little bit differently. And here it's dedicated to Lord Summers. Remember who's going to figure later on. Um, but notice, notice something's changed here. You see, now Lord Summers is in the scene. You see? So now Lord Summers has been introduced into the play as a form of homage because he is the great patron of Tonson. So it's also the case that Tonson uses this after this, this expedient for publishing, for financing. Plate subscription is not only about cultural capital, which I've emphasized, it's primarily about fiscal capital. If you get the production costs up front, you're going to be much, much, much better off. So um, this is a kind of throwaway volume. Um, all the plates are, are uh, noble women, uh, a clever, a clever uh, expedient. But at the same time, there's nothing new in the poetry. It's all recycled. This is just a way of using the backlist. It's what we might call in modern publishing repackaging. So it's the case that right around the same time that Ogilby was, was beginning to make his first plate subscription book, uh, Dugdale, the great English antiquary, was uh, soliciting subscriptions for his monasticon. Um, Dugdale is one of the many, many divines who during the time of Cromwell's reign was unemployed. And therefore, there's a kind of whole uh, uh, efflorescence, if you will, of royalist books produced by uh, Anglican divines who were unseated and unable to work. So they applied them, themselves and their learning. Well, one might read the Walton Polyglot very profitably in this way, it seems to me. Not a plate subscription book, but a monument of the interregnum. And so too, Dugdale's Monasticon, an unashamedly royalist book, the pre-dissolution of the monasteries, glory of England, and, and here, here it is, um, but every plate subscribed, or perhaps superscribed. 
And here, a true magnificent book, Dugdale's History of St. Paul's Cathedral. The images all taken before the fire, of course, and therefore, in many cases, the only record we have of what the interior of St. Paul's looked like before the fire, therefore an extremely important record. All of these are self-published by, by Dugdale, who does not have a lot of capital, and that causes him problem, a real problem in at least one case. Because if you look at the stationer's registers, Daniel King, the engraver, owned all the plates to the monasticon. And I think the naive antiquary Dugdale, you know how these academics are, uh, the naive antiquary Dugdale was very happy to have King own the plates. But in fact, then King published the plates with no reference, no reference at all to the monasticon, to Dugdale, to his Latin, to his scholarship. He just published the plates. And you can follow the kind of battle over this, and, and King wins. What's really interesting, though, in my mind, is the fact that if we examine these books closely, many of the published plates by King are earlier states than the ones published by Dugdale. In other words, King was making his own book all along in the production process. Aha! And Dugdale had no idea. So, so there are a series of these royalist productions and antiquarian pursuits or by English antiquaries, and I, I think we need to countenance those as a kind of genre, subgenre of the genre. And, and they do very well. Much less well are the books that are centered on natural history. Ladies and gentlemen, this book is a disaster. This is Willoughby's Fishes, produced here in Oxford at the press, supervised by no less than John Fell for the Royal Society in London. This was the book that was going to make the Royal Society as an international scientific power. Uh, 187 plates, beautiful, beautiful production values. Each plate sponsored, not with arms, because this was a society of scientists. So it merely says discreetly, sumptibus, sumptibus. And then, and then the name. So, but, but nonetheless, this is a plate subscription book. This is the second state, because originally they print each fish only on one side of the paper, and then they realize this is going to be far too expensive. They start to print on both sides. Um, Samuel Pepys, who was the president of the Royal Society, got left holding the bag, and he paid for 79 plates of the 187. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, <laughs> Rector Woodhausen. So it, 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 is, it is the case that um, they thought this book was going to make their reputation, and it didn't. And we find in the records of the Royal Society for decades, people being paid in copies of Willoughby's fishes <laughs> instead of getting cash because they're trying to move them somehow. This is a sad story. 
because the Principia Mathematica could not be published by the Royal Society because the publication committee just the year before had invested everything in Willoughby's fishes. Ah. Another very sad story involving the natural sciences is John Bevis's Uranographia, a book you almost most of you have never heard of before. Um, this is a plate subscription book, a great, great English astronomer who made genuinely new discoveries, but he entrusted the subscription and the upfront layout of the money to a man in Leadenhall Street who was a watchmaker named William Neal. And when William Neal, right when all was in readiness, went bankrupt, the government seized the plates as a capital asset. And for 21 years until his death, Bevis was never able to recover the plates. And other European scientists published the discoveries that they had made independently, subsequently. And he lost all priority because of the materiality and the economics Publishing. <coughs> it is the case that Alden's uh, English Insects took seven years to get the subscription completed. Uh, even though he had magnificent patronage, um, he just couldn't get a hundred subscribers. I know he was an, an entomologist, but people looked at it and they thought he was interested in bugs. This happened too to Moses Harris. Who, who spent 10 years and was only able to muster subscriptions for 41 plates. Again, perhaps something to do with the subject matter, and perhaps caterpillars, less of a source of national pride. Um, and yet, paradoxically, in Leiden, an extremely boring book about plant fossils was able to make it through two editions. I haven't checked to see if it's a reissue or not, and I apologize. Um, my favorite of all of this, though, is Greenhill's Necrochidia, or The Art of Embalming, with a decent subscription list here, running several pages, but only 14 men, most of them not nobles, would pony up for a plate. And, and, and he was not interested really in the, in the money, I think, so much as he hoped that this book on embalming as a plate subscription book and therefore garnering, he had hoped, great cultural capital because of its genre. Remember, genre is a culture of expectations for producers as well as consumers. And so he thought that the genre of the plate subscription book would mean that his book would have great cultural cachet and that embalming would become the new fad among the nobility in London, and it did not. And, and, and the, the book was something of a disaster. County histories were the best sellers among plate subscription books. And again, I think we need to understand that. Robert Plott um, should go down in infamy as the man who explained to the Royal Society, no worries, just publish Willoughby's Fishes as a plate subscription book. I did it with my natural history of Oxfordshire, and it worked fantastically. There were only 16 plates, 
there were four issues of the first edition in the very first year, but there were only 16 plates. Then he subsequently published The Natural History of Staffordshire. There were only 37 plates and a ready market for these localized productions. The taxonomy of fishes didn't have the same global appeal. Didn't have the, certainly. This becomes commercialized. We see Buck's views. Uh, this has nothing to do with national pride. This is purely a commercial enterprise. But you can see why people contributed and signed on. We've had this for 300 years in our family. I've had this through my mom. Look at these ruins. These are, this is my family. And guess what? I have arms, sort of. And if I don't have arms, the Buck Boys will help me get them through the college. So very, very interesting. Lest we should jeer too much at Samuel and Nathaniel, we perhaps ought to remember that Oxonia Illustrata, Mr. David Logan, was produced as a money-making enterprise. Nobody thinks of Logan as a hack. And Richard Bloom's The Gentleman's Recreation, this copy in the University Library in Cambridge, um, was also quite a successful book, a purely commercial endeavor. But the natural histories run and run and run right through much of the 19th century as plate subscription books. And that seems to me because there's a local market, there's a distribution network, and there's a ready supply of subscribers who want their name in the local book because they're from the locale. Um, it is the case that the, the, the origins of plate subscriptions in many ways go back to atlases and maps as well as classical translations. Here you see Richard Bloom, a contemporary of Ogilby, and Bloom himself was not a dancing master, he was a painter of arms. He had originally been a stationer who was a ruler as a young man, and then he became a painter of arms and he painted the arms on the funerary carriages of the nobility, and therefore got to know the court, and therefore got in the plate subscription business. But, but all his work in, in a cartographical way are just copies of Camden's Britannica and of Speed. He's a hack. I think Ogilby is not. Um, here you see Bloom again. This goes through three editions, and, and again, um, so you get the subscriber for five pounds. You're going to publish the second edition. What does he do? He goes back to the family and says, you know that book, if you pony up three pounds for a renewal fee, I'd be happy to keep your arms on the plate. And they say, that's appalling. We paid for this. And he says, yes, but there are many others who would like to have this plate. So they don't give the money, and then he gets five pounds from someone else. This particular plate goes through three different sponsors in its three editions. And so too, you can see from the empty cartouche, things weren't always successful. But it is the case that if we want to understand the origins of plate subscription, I think we need to go back to Dutch map makers. And this is a 1590 map, 1590 map by Ortelius. And you can see here is the dedication. And here it's blown up a little bit. And I think it's the dedicated engraved 
plates of atlases and maps that is the germ of plate subscription uh, in England and indeed for, for large undertakings throughout all of Europe. And Ortelius is certainly one of the people whom we must countenance if we wish to understand the genesis and development. And of course, he's so widely circulated that everybody sees and they say, ah, what a, what a gladsome expedient this could be. And so they take it up. And you can see here from looking at Herman Mall's famous beaver map of, of, uh, of British North America because of the beavers sporting near the waterfall. But this is, this is a subscription map. Mall has nothing to do with plate subscription books per se, but he's a cartographer and he knows the Dutch map makers. His name is Herman Mall. So, so, you know, this is what he does. There are conundra, of course, in understanding these objects in relation to other objects. Here, of course, is the famous illustrated Milton undertaken by Bentley and Thompson with its arresting illustrations. Not a plate subscription book. Why? A subscription, a remarkable subscription. And likewise, too, for the poetical works undertaken by Tonson himself. Here, perhaps, he didn't want to get in the way of the Virgil. But it still seems curious that he should so sedulously avoid what seems an obvious gambit. Um, most curious of all, perhaps, is the fact that Clarendon's History of the Rebellion, three volumes starting in 1702, large folio, a book aimed at the nobility of England, a book that's perfect for illustration. There's a copy in Oxford that has more than a thousand illustrations tipped into it. It's Grangerized. But why does this book have virtually no illustration coming out of Oxford University Press? You know, the theater, there it is. And they were making plate subscription books all the time. So why did they not do this? Was it because they didn't need the capital because of the Clarendon bequest? It's hard to know. You know, um, another question it seems to me that we need to ask ourselves since we're thinking about constellations of objects, since we're thinking about how contemporaries would have read the objects themselves in relation to other objects, seems to me that we have to ask ourselves what influence did particularly Ogilby's translations have on Alexander Pope? Spence, in his anecdotes, tells us that Pope told him, one of the first large poems I ever read was Ogilby's Homer and I took delight in the pictures. And Spence tells us Pope always spoke about the pleasure he took in that book with a sort of rapture. Could it be, could it be that the inspiration for the subscription undertaking of Pope that made him financially independent Pope's Homer. Could it be that the magnificent bespoke 
volume in every way the 1717 work with new headpieces and new initials could be inflected by Ogilvy's great volume? It seems to me it's hard to escape that conclusion. So how do we read the impact of these books over time? But we need to return, it seems to me, to the question of the Caesar itself and what Tonson was doing and how he and his fellow makers were doing it. And so there were illustrated Caesars before and there were illustrated Caesars published in England. And this is important to know because this book here, Clement Edmonds' um, Commentaries of Caesar, is a beautiful book. It has illustrations in it. It gets published over and over again. Here's the eighth edition in 1677. It's the first edition in 1600. So this is a book that runs in England throughout the 17th century. This, methinks, disqualifies it as a source for Tonson because everybody has seen this. Everybody who's interested in, in, in Caesar's commentaries will know this. So he better do something else. What does he do? But you'll notice modern training or tactic practice, you see. This is what the book is about for, for the consumers of the volume, in part. For me, the, the, the kind of moment at the pump like uh, Miss Keller had, was when I saw this depiction of the pit with her tattooed body, and I thought to myself, by God, if that's not debris. That is debris. And sure enough, ladies and gentlemen, that is debris. She's lost a little weight, but she's the same. All the pit are debris. And that made me think, well, what are the visual sources for this book? How did this book come to be the way it is? And how might we understand what its allusions are visually? And so I began to look at these curious German warriors, these primitive German warriors. And um, of course, uh, eventually I, I happened upon uh, Philippe Cluver's um, Germania Antiqua, and uh, there they are, all of them. Every Germanic, Germanic image in the book comes from a man born in Poland who studies in Leiden with Scalinger and becomes an important illustrator and publisher of books the Germania 1616, known very well, of course, to the Dutch factors of the book. And we can see over and over again that this is the visual source. Even the scenes that, that are kind of of domestic subjugation, as it were, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be present, they are copied as well. And then, and then for me, I was so disappointed in a way to find this source because I was sure, 
I was sure that Thompson was playing a game here. Doesn't he look like an 18th century contemporary? And I searched and searched and searched to discern who was this who was flashing his buttocks at the, at the, the, the noble public. But it's not, because this is the, this is the Germania plate. And so so um, I was disappointed, but pleased to find the source. But then I, I must confess that I, I found the, the views of the camps which predominate, the, the, the arrays of battle, which were so important to those who were studying the book for military purposes, I found them quite boring. But I wondered if there was perhaps a source for them. Uh, and, and then I, I thought I found the source because I found an, a, an astonishing one-to-one -one correspondence. They're reversed, of course. The disposition of the troops, the disposition of the tents, the architecture of the city, the architecture of the city. And I said, my god, this is a copy. Oh, it's a copy from Palladio. Ah. And we know if we study this book a little bit, this, this rather beautiful book, we know that Palladio tells us the drawings were made by his two sons, who unfortunately both died in 1573. And the book was published in 1575 after he engraved it himself. It was their training project, as it were. And so here you can see in this detail more clearly the degree of correspondence. Here, this is not reversed, but here, just look for example at the bridge. Here, here. If you count, you'll find correspondences everywhere. Who, what engraver in Holland wouldn't want to copy Palladio? And so why wouldn't you not just copy him, why wouldn't you, as it were, emulate him? Scarcely daring to embellish him. Over and over and over again. <coughs> oh, and that Ortelius map that I showed you, that 1590? Oh, sure. Here it is, dedicated to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And here it is. You can see Gallia, and this is from Caesar's Commentaries, Ortelius, 1590. Another Dutch source. They'll go far afield to find the resources they need. And then finally, the book ends, dare I say, triumphally, with the triumph of Caesar. The last nine plates are truly remarkable as we see Caesar coming through the city in triumph, the highest honor that a general could receive. And you see uh, the, the different subscriptions, and there are nine of them. Eight of the subscribers in this final sequence are members of the Privy Council. One of them is a former member of the Privy Council. And here we see the grand procession 
fantastic way to end the book. And here, again, is the plate dedicated to Summers as the Lord Chancellor of England, the crowning, as it were, plate of the whole series. And I thought to myself, by God, they didn't make these up. And it turns out, of course, that this is Montaigne's triumph of Caesar, verbatim, as it were, right? And, and so this is, this is, of course, one of the great trophies at, at Hampton Court, part of the pride of England, purchased for Charles I in 1629, brought over in 1633, valued at a thousand pounds during the time of Cromwell as he was selling off the royal treasures. But he wouldn't sell this because he knew it was too much part of the great inheritance of England. And I, I'm not sure that those Dutch engravers ever had a good look at Hampton Court, but I'm pretty sure that they would have seen Andriani's chiaroscuro woodcuts of Montaigne. And here you see Gonzaga, the great patron, on the title page. And here you see how close the correspondence is. Debris, Ortelius, Cleaver, Palladio, Montaigne, as well as the Dutch factors of the book. What is Thompson doing? Have we explained anything? I hope we haven't explained anything away, but what are the resources of the book, materially marshaled as they must inevitably be? What are the resources of the book that are marshaled in its materiality? And how do those resources contribute to the making of cultural meaning? How can we only understand this object in relation to other objects? How does this book perforce put bibliography into creative conversation with art history, for example. Is it not time that bibliography began to speak with and to attend humbly to the other object-oriented disciplines? How did this book come to be the way it is? And how do we understand Thompson's 1712 Caesar in relation to constellations of objects that inform the ways that it makes its material meaning. Thank you very much.